In just a few minutes, we will be looking at the book of Acts, chapter 15, and verses 1 through 21. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there this morning, um, you should be able to find that in the Bible app if you search for the uh, for First Baptist Church in Washington, Illinois. Um, if not, all these notes will be on our website as well. We had some technical difficulties, so I'm, I'm preaching this message later, so the notes will not be appearing behind me. I'm just going to uh, kind of go through everything and uh, do it that way. But Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 21 is where we will be. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question this morning. What do you do when someone disagrees with you? I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in a time when it seems like you can't really hold an opinion without someone disagreeing with you in some way, shape, or form, especially with the onslaught of social media. I mean, you can't even post a picture of, of a kitten without someone that's going to have a problem with the fact that you posted a picture of a kitten. So how do you handle it? How do you handle it when there's disagreement? How do you handle it when someone disagrees with you on social media or to your face or that sort of thing? But more specifically, I'm concerned with how do you handle it when someone disagrees with you in the church? There's some people that get all bent out of shape and they just decide that they're gonna leave the church. They decide that, well, well, if, uh, uh, if someone's gonna disagree with me, I'm not gonna deal with this, I'm not gonna put up with this anymore, I might as well just leave the church. And it's like the man that was stranded on the deserted island. When a ship came to his rescue, the captain learned that the man had been living alone on this island for five years. However, there were three huts. So the captain asked him about those huts. The man said, uh, uh, first that, that he, he said, well, what, what's these three huts? And he said, well, in that first hut, I live in that hut. And the captain said, well, what about the second hut? Oh, that's where I go to church. Well, the captain was curious. He said, well, what about this third hut? Uh, and the, cat, and the, the man said, oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. Personally, I think the man must have been a Baptist. You know, so he had the church that he went to and the church he used to go to, even though he was the only man on the island. And that's, the story's meant to be funny, but in actuality, it's really not funny when a church really does split. When churches have division, people get hurt. Some people get so disgusted with the church that they, that they leave church altogether. Others can get so disillusioned that, the, that they leave uh, the faith altogether. I'm certain that there are people here right now or, or um, who are listening online or will listen online that have been through a church split. In the New Testament, the churches of Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossus were in danger of divisions. And as we looked at last week, the Lord deems unity among believers as very important. After all, he died to secure unity. And that unity is, significant, is a significant part of our witness to a lost world. And so he calls, uh, so the call was that they were to be diligent in preserving and protecting the unity of the church and the spirit of the bond of peace and growing in maturity in Christ so that we may obtain the unity of the faith. So here is the question. How can we protect unity if there are differences? Is it even possible to do so? To understand this, we must know that there are at least four different types of uh, four different things that threaten church unity. The first is doctrinal differences, which we are going to talk about today. The second is personal differences, which is caused by personal wrongs, and this frequently happens in the church. The third is personality differences, 
And the fourth is methodological differences. We'll deal with all those others at a later time, but today we want to deal with doctrinal differences. Here's the main point I want us to get out of this message this morning. Doctrinal differences can be biblically dealt with in such a way that the gospel is not hindered. Doctrinal differences can be biblically dealt with in such a way that the gospel is not hindered. So let me ask you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're listening at home. And if you don't want to stand, it's not like I'm going to know it, whether you do or not. But uh, we're going to read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 this morning. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them to the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the, on the neck of the disciples that neither our Father nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related God's first, that God first visited the Gentiles to take them from the people for his name. And with, this, uh, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from that which was strangled, and from the blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim to him, for he is uh, for he is read every Sabbath in a synagogue. Let us pray. Father, take this word that I'm proclaiming this morning. And whenever people are listening to it, whether it be the afternoon, next week, next year, next month, whatever it is, take your word. Penetrate the hearts of people. Teach us what it is that we're supposed to do with doctrinal differences. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When we were going through the books of, book of Acts, I preached two sermons over this text. I'm not going to do that. Uh, those sermons were dividing over the doctrine of salvation and leadership responsibilities. We're going to have one sermon this morning. Just a completely different message than either one of those two. 
Some people think that, doc, that doctrine is not important or that theological controversies are silly. And they're only for theologians to sit around and argue about, and they, they surely don't affect the average churchgoer. However, let me remind you about the Protestant Reformation, which centered on some important doctrinal disputes between the Roman Catholic Church who refused to correct these disputes. Although some are calling for the division that happened back then to come to an end, the doctrinal division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers was and still is a heart that is a, at the heart of it a division over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, for that reason, we have doctrinal differences because truth matters. The reason we have doctrinal differences, number one, is because we have doctrinal differences because truth matters. What is the difference between you and a Jehovah's Witness? Well, the Jehovah's Witness may go out and be knocking on doors to try to earn their salvation, and they're actually headed to hell. A believer believes in Jesus Christ and is bound for heaven. But what is really the difference? The difference is a theological difference. Now, someone will say, no, the difference is I believe in Jesus Christ, and the Jehovah's Witness doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, really? Because I've talked to many Jehovah's Witnesses more than one of them, and every single one that I've ever talked to believes in Jesus Christ. And they will even say they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So what's the problem? Why aren't they going to heaven? Well, the problem is the Jesus that they believe in is not the same Jesus that's in the Bible. But instead, it's a Jesus that is created, a created being, and not the eternal Son of God. You see, at the heart of the issue is a theological issue. There's always someone who says, well, doctrine is just divisive. Love is the most important thing. Let me ask you this. What if someone you love was about to drink a glass of water that was filled with a deadly poison and they didn't know it? They thought it was pure water. However, you knew that if they drank that water, it was going to kill them. Love does not ignore the truth. That water will kill them. It doesn't matter if they sincerely believe with all their heart that the water is good for them. It still will kill them. Faith is only as good as its object. Faith is a poisonous, faith in a poisonous glass of water is still deadly. Faith in a toxic gospel is eternally deadly. Spiritual truth is not relative to a person's opinion on God or the gospel. To be saved, our faith must be in God's only revealed way of salvation, which is the eternal Son of God crucified for our sins and risen for our justification. So what we have in our text is this is this uh, doctrinal, this theological uh, controversy in the early church because the gospel had spread from its Jewish origins to the Gentiles, and the early church in Jerusalem consisted mostly of Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ as their crucified and risen Messiah. But when the gospel then spread north to Antioch and then beyond through Paul and Barnabas's, Barnabas's missionary journey, there were many Gentiles that came to faith in Jesus Christ. And after Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, some of the Jews who were called Judaizers, who professed to believe in Jesus, began going to largely Gentile churches that Paul and Barnabas had established. And they taught them that in addition to believing in Christ for salvation, that, that they had to, the Gentiles had to be circumcised and follow the Jewish ceremonial laws. And Paul wrote the letter, uh, the letter of Galatians, to deal with this, to refute this spiritually deadly air. Eventually, the Judaizers came to Antioch and they were teaching. And when it says, but some men, but some men there that we read in our text, that's talking about the Judaizers. 
They're teaching that unless you're being circumcised, unless you get circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you can't be saved. Needless to say, Paul and Barnabas have a problem with this. It says that they had a great dissension with them, and so the church sends this delegation to Jerusalem to get this matter all cleared up. The apostles and the elders that are there, and the Jerusalem council affirmed the same gospel that Paul preached, but asked the Gentile converts to abstain from some things that would needlessly alienate unbelieving Jews. <clears throat> Here's the point. Paul did not see this as some unimportant doctrinal dispute that should just be overlooked for love of fellow believers. Instead, he saw it as a poisonous water that threatened the truth of the gospel itself. Understand something, when the truth of the gospel is at stake, doctrinal differences are crucial. Even though these Judaizers were probably sincere and they only wanted to preserve the law of Moses, they were sincerely wrong. Paul didn't just shrug it off and say, well, you know, unity must prevail at all costs. We just got to set aside our differences. We just got to come together where we agree and everything will be okay. No, instead, Paul fights vigorously for the truth of the gospel. And in fact, he pronounces eternal judgment on these false leaders. He saw the people's eternal destinies were at stake. Right doctrine can make an eternal difference. Right doctrine can make an eternal difference. Secondly, the second point I want us to see about doctrinal differences is this. We can resolve them without compromising the truth and preserving unity. We can resolve them without compromising the truth and preserving unity. Yes, unity is imperative, but it can never trump the truth of the gospel because if the gospel is compromising or compromised, the resulting unity is really not the uh, unity of the spirit. Instead, what you have is unity of some people that believe in Jesus and some who do not. Jesus prayed for the disciples' love and unity, but this was a love and unity that was based on truth. Jesus claimed to speak the truth and to be the truth. When he told Pilate in John 18, 37, Pilate says to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He promised that he would send the spirit of truth to his disciples. So to try to make this argument that Jesus set love above truth is a false argument. He knew that if one tolerated a false gospel, that's not love because it would lead that person that's believing in the false gospel to damnation, not to eternal life. The Apostle Paul also knew one could not preserve peace while compromising the truth of the gospel in the name of unity and love. He raised disunity with Peter and Barnabas over a situation that occurred in Antioch. Peter had visited the church there. He had ate with the Gentiles, something strict Jews would never do. He realized the Gentiles who, who were believers were true brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And then when the Judaizers show up to Antioch, Peter and even Barnabas feared the, the disapproval of the Judaizers, and so they withdraw from eating with the Gentiles. What does Paul do? Paul boldly confronts them in front of the entire church. He knew that to preserve unity while compromising the gospel would have been spiritually fatal. Do you see how relevant this is to our day and time? We have these highly influential Christian leaders that are calling for Protestants to be unified with the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh, it's okay. They argue that we should come together because of our many beliefs that we share in so many significant areas. We can just 
agree to disagree on justification by faith alone, but we can't just agree to disagree on justification by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that we must not only believe in Jesus, but that we have to add good works to our salvation. It's a merit-based salvation. It's the same error that the Galatian Judaizers were teaching. Believe in Jesus plus add good works. Rome still affirms the canons of the councils of Trent that condemn those who believe that we are justified by faith alone. Now, I love Billy Graham, and he's led many people to the Lord. But for many years, he played down that there was any difference between evangelicals, evangelicals and Roman Catholics. He said, I don't think the differences are important so far as personal salvation is concerned. Really? So there's no difference if you think that you, you have to have Jesus plus earn your way to salvation. He also said, the badge of Christian discipleship is not orthodoxy, but love. <clears throat> it is because of, because of his powerful influence and the influence of other well-known Christians that advocate for reconciliation with the Roman Catholic Church that there's this immense pressure on pastors today to drop their doctrinal differences and join with, with all who call themselves Christians. In 1994, there's this article on World Vision that was written by Ron Sider, who said this, it's a sin to refuse to join ecumenical dialogue and the processes with other Christians who confess Jesus as God and Savior. It is a sin to send our missionaries to other lands with long Christian traditions without first consulting with the churches already there. And in the context of the article, he's making a reference to Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. In, in areas where they were strong. I quickly found out how strong Roman Catholicism was in our own town here in Washington, Illinois. Whenever I try to talk to people about the Lord and so often they would throw their hand up and say, well, I'm Catholic, to try to shut me down as quickly as possible. Listen, I'd be the first one to admit that there have been many shameful divisions among Christians over ridiculous and trivial issues, which is sinful. But I want to be clear, you can never compromise the truth for the sake of unity. The Bible shows that there are times when it is a sin to divide over doctrine, when that doctrine concerns how a person gets saved. There can be no compromise. If it's, if it's not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and something has been added to the gospel. And that's not saving faith. So here's the question, how do, we, how do we resolve doctrinal differences in a biblical manner while still trying to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? That's a great question. So how do we do this? I got some ways that we can do this and, and that's what I'm gonna do through the rest of the sermon. How do, we, how do we do this? So number three, steps to biblical resolution. Steps to biblical resolution. I'm gonna break this down into five steps and below those steps, there will be some subsets, but I'm going to break this down into five steps to biblical resolution. First, step number one, or A in your outline, determine importance. We have to determine the, import, the importance of this, of this disagreement. We talked about this briefly last week, but we have to ask ourselves just how significant is this controversy. And like last week, uh, we broke that down into three areas of, of significance. Area number one is gospel essential truth. Gospel essential truth. Is this something that deals with gospel essential truth? To deny these truths of the gospel would be a denial of the Christian faith and heresy. These truths include the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. If someone denies this, then, then, then they have no basis for determining 
what is spiritually true and what is false. If the Bible is an error over where abortion or homosexuality is sin, or whether Paul was wrong on the roles of men and women, then maybe it's wrong in other areas as well, like whether we need faith in Jesus Christ to get to heaven. You see, when you cast out on Scripture, then you can take it, then you uh, can, can make God's Word be whatever you want it to be. Say, so, well, I don't need that. That doesn't really apply. The Bible must be our foundation of truth. Uh, area number two, doctrine number two, where there can be no wavering, is the Trinity. God is one God who exists eternally uh, as three co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom is entirely God. To deny the Trinity is to deny the truthfulness of Jesus and the apostles who clearly taught it. Doctrine number three, the full deity and humanity of Jesus. If Jesus is not fully human, he cannot attain for human sins. And if he is not fully God, his death for sinners could never satisfy the justice of God. Many scriptures affirm both the humanity and, and uh, uh, deity of Jesus. Doctrine number four, the substitutionary death of Jesus that satisfied God's wrath as the payment for our sins. Jesus did not die to set an example of love for others to follow. Rather, he died to bear God's wrath on behalf of all sinners who put their trust in him. Included in this is the truth that all people are sinners from birth. Doctrine number five, Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead and his bodily second coming in power and glory. If Jesus is not raised bodily, our faith is in vain. And if Jesus is not coming back bodily, he lied and he can't be believed about anything. Lastly, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Doctrine number six. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are justified through that, which means declared righteous by God as a gift, by his grace, through faith, not by anything that you and I can do. If we can earn it, it's not grace. That's the beauty of grace. There's nothing I can do to deserve the grace of God. So it is, an, so is this an essential gospel issue? That's That's... Question number one, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Is this essential or is it important? Is it important but doesn't relate to salvation? This, these, this affects how we live as Christians. How we understand God, how we understand man, how we understand salvation, our Christian life. These are important truths, but, but genuine Christians differ on them. Some of these fall into what we call gray areas. They're, they're vitally important, but... but, but um, they almost border on essential. Let me give you a doc, uh, let me give you an example: the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell. That's very close to essential truth. But there are people, such as the late John Stott, who deny it. I don't think John Stott's not a believer. I strongly disagree with him, and I think he's in serious error. But but I still believe he's a believer. So that's an, an important truth, but it's not essential to salvation. There's other examples of this, God's sovereignty versus human free will and our salvation, views on the baptism, uh, church governance, biblical prophecy, old earth versus young earth, charismatic gifts, the role of women in the church today, Christian psychology, divorce and remarriage, all these things, important issues, not saving truths. Finally, we come to interesting truths. So, so we have essential, we have important, we have interesting. Interesting truths are just these real simple truths that you know we like to look at and try to figure out and that sort of thing that, that, that uh, are perhaps in the Bible or even extra biblical things that we maybe the Bible's not real clear on. 
which I talked about a little bit last week, like, did Adam have a belly button? Who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter six? Did Christ really descend into hell? So the first step is determine just how important this truth is. Is this essential? Is it important or is it just interesting? So once you determine that, now you have to check your attitude. Check your attitude. So that's B, check your attitude. I want to say that this is critical. I don't know about you, but I have a propensity towards pride and I can defend the truth like no one's business and I like to defend the truth and I get prideful sometimes doing it. But it's so easy to defend the truth the wrong way. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I've been guilty of doing that many times. Jesus and Paul strongly confronted those who were in error, so there are times when that should be and can be necessary, but the scripture must guide us on how we correct those who are in error. In Galatians chapter 6, 1, Paul writes, the transgression uh, may be a doctrinal error. Or in Galatians 6, 1, sorry about that. Galatians 6, 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this transgression may be a doctrinal error. Our goal is always restoration. Our goal is not to prove that we're right and they are wrong, but it's, it's restoration. On top of that, we are to act in gentleness and humility. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26, Paul states this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his, his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So first thing you do is check your attitude. So is this, is this uh, uh, essential, important, or is it just uh, interesting? Uh, so I determine that. Now, now I check my attitude. How's my attitude? Now what do we do if it's essential? So that's, that's C. If it is essential, what do we do? Well, that's a good question. I have, I have some things I want to quickly try to quickly go over. First, listen completely. We have two ears, one mouth. We should spend twice as much time listening as we do talking. I know personally for me, I've been trying to practice being a better listener. And if you wanna improve on your listening, I wanna help you out. And guys, especially you men, especially if you're married, pay attention to what I'm about to say. We need to work on our listening skills. I want you to remember the word here. H is for halt. Stop what you're doing and pay attention. Stop what you're doing and pay attention to the person that is speaking. E is for empathy. Put yourself in their shoes. You wanna be a better listener? Stop, put yourself in their shoes. It can also mean engage, engage them while listening. You know, sometimes maybe you need to lean your ear into them. A is for anticipate. Anticipate that you're gonna learn something and anticipate where they're going. So anticipate, hey, I'm gonna learn something here and where they're going. R is for review. Review what they just said. Review what they just said. So if you're talking with somebody and they say something to you, you halt, you stop what you're doing, you pay attention to what they're saying, you, you, empath you, you empathize with them, put yourself in their shoes, and then you review it with them. So what you're saying is, right? Just remember that and you will listen far better. The apostle and the elders listen to the Judaizers completely, and then Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and James state their case. Understand that the person, what the person is saying before you make a judgment, before you're like, oh, well, I'm just going to judge them right away. Understand and listen completely. Number two, 
This is, remember, this is if it's an essential truth. Listen completely. Number two, consider where they're coming from. And you do this by asking yourself some questions. Does this person really understand the gospel? Are they a new believer? Are they just lacking in teaching? Is this person knowledgeable and they're trying to actively promote false doctrine by preying on younger believers who do not know as much as they do? With a new believer, an untaught believer, we have to be gentle. If someone is deliberately teaching false doctrine, they have to be rebuked, and sometimes strongly. Number three, seek outside counsel. Don't be afraid to seek outside counsel if necessary. Paul and Barnabas brought this crucial issue back to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. There are times I have to seek wisdom from other pastors in, in areas and situations that I can't fully grasp what's going on. Number four, the scripture is final. Remember, the scripture is final. The Bible has to be our final authority. James supports Peter, Paul, and Barnabas' testimonies by making an appeal to the prophet, Amos. In verse 28, they conclude, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The mind of the Spirit is not determined by our subjective feelings, but what the Spirit-inspired prophets and apostles wrote in God's word. If your interpretation of a major doctrine goes against the consistency of a spirit-filled godly men, you better look out. Number five, we can make concessions on minor issues. We can make concessions on minor issues. We hear this all the time, like, oh, well, you can make concessions. That's true, you can, but only on minor issues, right? So in order to not offend the Jews, the Gentile converts were asked to abstain from three things that violated the ceremonial law, which were con uh, things contaminated by idols, things that were strangled, and the blood. And then we have this, uh, it's almost like sexual morality is just inserted in there. And we say, well, what's this? I mean, we have this talking about um, a ceremonial law and that sexual immorality is an absolute moral issue. But we have to keep in mind that the Gentile culture accepted temple prostitution and men having mistresses was a very common practice. So it's believed that perhaps the Gentile converts didn't really understand God's moral standards just yet, uh, especially concerning marital fidelity. So if Gentile converts continued with pagan practices, it was going to hinder reaching the Jews with the gospel. And so the Gentiles were asked not to offend the Jews on these matters, but the truth of the gospel, uh, so the truth of the gospel would not be compromised. And it was not compromised. So concessions can be made on minor issues. Lastly, church discipline may be required. Again, this is essential truths. So somebody's um, speaking uh, a false teaching in the church, church discipline may be required. We don't hear much about this, but the goal is always to bring restoration, to bring the knowledge, uh, bring the, the person that's teaching error into the knowledge of the truth. And if someone in the church continues in a significant doctrinal error, then the church must be protected and they must uphold sound doctrine. And that person who is stubbornly holding on to false doctrine must be removed from the church. Well, so that's essential. That's what we do if it's essential. Church discipline may be required. We can make concessions on small issues. The scripture is final. We can seek outside counsel. We consider where they're coming from and we listen completely, which involves here, halt, uh, show empathy or engage, anticipate and uh, review. What if it's important but non-saving? What if it's important but non-saving? 
Well, we see clearly from the scripture that we read this morning that elders are to determine the best course of action. Elders are to determine the best course of action. This is why a plurality of elders is so crucial to the life of the church. The church is supposed to have a stance on baptism, on membership, on the role of women in the church and in the home and on other issues. This is why the church should have a covenant for covenant membership so all members agree on what it is to be a member of the church. We can, we can recognize that other churches are Bible-believing churches and, and that they'll be different and that's okay. But I'm talking about our church. Let me ask you this. Who answers to the Lord on how the church is led? According to the scripture, who answers to the Lord on how the church is led? Is it the people? Is it, uh, you know, just some random person? Who answers to the Lord? It's the elders that answer to the Lord. Who's gathered together in Acts chapter 15, which we just read, to consider this matter? Is it the church at large? No. Is it the deacons? No. Is it a church council? No. Is it some sort of committee on, on you know, we have the, we have the committee on, on doctrinal issues? No. It's the apostles and the elders. Why do we tie the hands of elders by trying to dictate to them what we want them to do and then we complain when they don't meet our expectations or our criteria? We say, well, we want you to do this. As elders, we want you to do this, and you're not meeting my criteria, so now I'm going to get upset and mad. It's God who has called the elder, God elders, God who places the elders in the church to do God's work. And it's God who the elders will answer to. The leaders, the elders will answer to how the church is led. And I'm not talking about age. The, the elders are supposed to decide the best course of action for the church. It's not the people. The people aren't supposed to decide the best course of action. You see, that was the problem. The people were trying to decide the best course of action. That's why Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to the council where the apostles and elders are gathered together to decide the best course of action. We're supposed to have a plurality of elders that make these decisions. But what if elders disagree with one another? What if they disagree? That's number two. So we're looking at this is this is an important issue, but it's non-saving. First, elders determine the best course of action. If elders disagree, minor, the minority either submit, resign, or move on. If elders disagree, the minority either submit, resign, or move on. There have been times in the past when I've talked to churches about being their pastor or student pastor that I knew there would be doctrinal issues where I would not be able to submit to that church what they wanted. So I declined. I knew that going there and trying to change the policy would only bring disunity and may split the church, so I declined. I even withdrew my name in one church on the day they were supposed to vote on me. Elders must agree on important issues. That's why a plurality of elders is needed. You need them to, to degree and say, this is the direction we're heading. The problem in most Southern Baptist churches is there's not a plurality of elders. There's one elder. One. And he's trying to decide where to go, but he feels like he's all alone. Stuck on an island trying to make these decisions, but nobody to make them with it. 
And then he feels his hands are tied because he's held to standards that he shouldn't be held to. A plurality of elders is needed. Disunity among leaders or those who think they are leaders will cause disharmony among the flock. Well, what do we do if it's a minor issue? This is where love trumps preference. So many issues are just not worth fighting over. We're called to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, Philippians 1.29. When it comes to a minor issue, we should practice Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but humility. in humility count others more important than yourselves. Listen, I've been around those who want to major in the minors. They're convinced that, that they're right on some minor little issue like what you're supposed to wear to church on Sunday morning, right? And I'm not saying there's anything. If you want to dress up for church on Sunday morning, be my guest. Dress up. Dress all you want. You can come in a three-piece suit. You can come in a bow tie. I don't care. So I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on that issue. But there are those people that, that, that they say, well, you got to wear your Sunday's best to church. And they're on a crusade to convince everyone else around them that they are right. And at some point, this person needs to be told gently but firmly to back off because often there's a deeper issue to be dealt with. If you can help them deal with the root issue, they will stop majoring in the minors. I want to conclude this message first by asking you if you know Christ as your Savior. You see, and none of this message talking about doctrinal differences make any, makes any sense if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation. You can do that today. If you want to trust in Christ, you can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not a magic prayer. It's just putting your trust in Christ. And if you put your trust in Christ, he saves you. It's expression uh, to him. If you said that prayer or something like it, or you want to know more, I'd love to follow up with you. And you can, you can, what you can do is, since this is just going to be posted online, is you can um, send the word faith to 309-328-3488. Once again, that's the word faith. Just text the word faith to 309-328-3488. If you don't want to do that, you just want to send a text message, you can send a text message to that. Now, last week I closed with a quote from J.C. Ryle. I want to do the same this week. It says, Controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It's hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there's one thing which is even worse than controversy, and that is the false doctrine tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest or molestation. Three things there are which men never ought to trifle with, a little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. So let me ask you, are you taking appropriate Bible measures to deal with doctrinal differences? And if not, why not? I'm going to close this with a time of prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, there's people that will listen to this online or on YouTube or wherever they're going to listen. And they may be convicted. They may be convicted by your word. And Father, I pray for that to be so. 
especially if we're not dealing appropriately with doctrinal differences. I pray that you'd bring conviction into our life, that we'd appropriately deal with them, that we'd handle them rightly, that we'd always stand on the truth and we'd never compromise the truth. But Lord, in, in areas where, there's, where we need to submit to, to elders, that we do that. In areas where these doctrinal differences are small and minor, that we just let them go and, and not sit there and fight over them. So bring conviction where conviction is needed. But then, Lord, for those that may not know Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray the truth of the gospel was, was heard well enough in this message that they'd respond to that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.